Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Nick Gosling. Today we have a special guest, Chris Horst, who is Vice President of Development at Hope International, where he employs his passion for advancing initiatives at the intersection of faith and work. Chris also serves on the board of the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, and he is co-author with Peter Greer of the book Mission Drift and Entrepreneurship for Human Flourishing, which is the topic of today's show. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. A joy to be with you. You know, your your book, uh, which was uh, put out by a uh, kind of a joint effort um, with the American Enterprise Institute and uh, Values and Capitalism, Entrepreneurship for Human Flourishing. I picked this up at a conference. I think it was one of, one of the Hope International conferences in uh, Pennsylvania a couple years ago. And one of the things that you start off with is something that kind of troubled you that you didn't see many business people at conferences related to either social justice or economic justice. Can you start off by telling us like that experience? Because that seems very that, that's a little troubling to me as well. Well, cards on the table. I work for a nonprofit, so the reality is that I I interact in that space a lot, and I'm invited to speak and invited to come and participate in all sorts of conferences and summits and gatherings about poverty alleviation and about missions and about economic justice. And as someone who works for a nonprofit, uh, I, I always find it interesting that it's it's incredibly rare that business people are invited to speak and present, even though you know John Perkins has said that the, the world's best social service program is a job. And and I think, you know, growing up as a, a in a family business and my dad and my grandpa being business owners. I saw the impact that they had on alleviating poverty and it, and it wasn't in maybe the flashiest of ways and it wasn't the same as running a homeless shelter or working in some other nonprofit, but they were creating livelihoods for people and doing the things that prevent people from falling into poverty and, and prevent people from falling uh, you know, below that line of sustenance. So watching the way my, fam- my you know, dad and grandpa created jobs for people really just gave me an appreciation that uh, these guys can't be on the sidelines, and we we can't expect to have a real substantive conversation about poverty when we're only talking to and with and and hearing from folks that are working in the social sector. and And it's a real issue, I think, in in how we think about poverty that that only a very small slice of our economy and of our population have a role to play in addressing it. and And I think we're overlooking. Uh, one of the primary players in the fight on poverty, which is those that are creating jobs and, and creating wealth in our society. You know, many of our audience listeners are, are libertarians and they're also Christians and they, they kind of are against social welfare. And one of the one of the common statements that are said is, oh, well, that's not a job for the government. That's a job for the church. And I'm I'm actually not a fan of that 
sort of uh, remark because it it leaves out basically what you're saying is that it kind of it gives people the impression that the only option is either some sort of government welfare or other people giving welfare voluntarily, which is what we call charity. Right. Yeah. And again, it's it's overlooking the the primary player. Uh, and it, it's almost like, you know, you, you look at all of the data on how people escape poverty, how people stay out of poverty and how people experience some level of dignity in their lives. And it all points back to having a good job. And the, the only uh, sector that creates wealth and creates jobs, new jobs, uh, are businesses, the, the private sector. And, and we just miss it. So, you know, I think for me that this, the, the reality in my own life is that uh, I grew up in a family where my, my dad is a business owner, my grandpa a business owner, but I also grew up with an older brother with special needs. Uh, my brother I grew up going to Special Olympics and participating in the Special Olympics community. And, you know, there were a lot of people that pitied my brother and a lot of people that thought that he needed charity and he needed someone to come alongside him and support him because of the limitations that he has in his life. You know, a lot of the things that are easy for many of us are hard for my older brother. But the best thing that ever happened to him, apart from him becoming a Christian, was the day that he got a job offer to, to go work at Costco. And he's been there now for 18 years, and he actually bought a property that shares a, a property border with Costco because of how much he loves working there. And he's in, you know, really flourished at Costco. People love my brother. Uh, he's always has the long, longest line at the checkout, not because he's bad at his job, but because he's a, a celebrity in that store. So he's able to, to both give and serve to the, the Costco staff and customers but also they get a real benefit because everyone loves Matthew. So it's this incredible uh, marriage of social service, quote unquote, and a job where um, Costco wins, my brother wins, and we win as society. So what Matthew didn't need was charity. What he needed was an opportunity to use the gifts and abilities that God had given him. And I've never seen a, I've never seen a Costco store manager or any of the Costco executives uh, at any of the, the the poverty conferences or the nonprofit, you know, <laughs> conferences I've been to, and I think that's a problem. So, Chris, can you walk us through the the basic thesis of entrepreneurship for human flourishing? Doug and I have both read it, but for our listeners, if you can just kind of give a a brief overview of what the book is about. Well, we believe, and we argue in the book that God created human beings in His image, and God created us like like he is wired and that we are created to work. The very first thing that we, we know about God is that he was a working God. And we, we know that before evil entered the world, before sin existed, God gave a mandate to his people that we were to, like him, we were to work. And so we believe that's, that is true uh, throughout the course of history, across cultures, across socioeconomic backgrounds, that it's not just it's not just our responsibility, but it's part of what it means to be human. That work is central to our identity as image bearers. And so our thesis in the book is that a lot of times when we consider some of the biggest challenges facing our world, we forget that truth. Because I think most Christians would agree with everything I've just said. And yet a lot of the ways that we go about addressing poverty, a lot of the ways that we go about uh, helping and serving those who are marginalized, it actually stifles and suppresses their ability to obey God's command to work. 
And, you know, the most obvious and sort of uh, endemic uh, iterations of this are in the ways that we conduct uh, international relief and development, the, way that, the ways that we serve and, and respond to, to global poverty. So many of our charitable efforts are actually inhibiting people's ability to work. Uh, this is probably most evidenced in a place like Haiti, a place where there is the highest per capita amount of missionaries and charities of any country in the world, and yet it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And at Hope International, we help people to start and expand small businesses, and we help them to provide for their own families through all different uh, financial tools to help them flourish. And one of the biggest challenges we have is that, that many of the people we're serving have to com- they have to make the decision, do, do they want to start a farming business and, and create opportunities for their families that way? Or do they want to go wait in line at any number of the hundreds of charities that are there um, providing free stuff? And, and so we, I think in the ways we think about charity, the ways we think about poverty, we often uh, we neglect to uh, remember that God created us all to work. So our charitable efforts have to reinforce this. And when they don't, it's not just bad for us because it puts us into a place of savior for those that are struggling, but it's also bad for the people we're trying to serve because it, it, it robs them of the opportunity to use the gifts and abilities that God has given them to serve their neighbors and to provide for their families. How would you define entrepreneurship in this context? And is there anything distinct uh, in, in your view about Christian entrepreneurship? In, in the book, we look at entrepreneurship through a couple of different lenses. In the places that Hope International works, most people are entrepreneurs by necessity, not by choice. Uh, we work in places like Congo and Burundi and Malawi and Zimbabwe and Haiti, uh, places where the there just aren't a lot of good jobs available for people. And, and so your choices are to start a business, to start a small livelihood, um, or, or not. It, th- there aren't jobs where people can kind of jump around. So in that context, entrepreneurship is a reality for almost everyone. And in a lot of the places we work, the vast majority of people are entrepreneurs by the, the realities of their, their economy. And then we, we look at, like, on, if entrepreneurship starts there with, uh, let's say, a, a family who buys clothing in the city center and then resells it in their community or, or buys uh, seeds to, to start a small you know, farm of some sort at their home, uh, then it extends the whole way up to Costco, which I talked about earlier. And, and obviously, in the case of Costco, they're creating jobs for thousands of people. Uh, and, and really entrepreneurship, you know, we look at it sort of on that spectrum from, from the, the woman selling bananas out of the front of her house, uh, to the fortune 500 company and every size company along that spectrum has a role to play in, in promoting human flourishing. And it is true that, uh, there should be a, a stark difference between the way a Christian leads a company and, and, uh, a way a Christian is an entrepreneur and, and someone who's not, there should be, there isn't always. Uh, but when I think about like a company like Hobby Lobby, for an example, which is obviously a, a really prominent case of a Christian led enterprise. When you listen to the Green family and David Green, the founder, talk about Hobby Lobby, you hear woven into the way they think about their business, their Christian faith, 
at all aspects of the business. So they close on Sundays. We know that. Uh, but, but hearing David talk about it, he says, I want my people to experience Sabbath. Uh, I want to structure my company in a way so that we can be well-rounded people and create uh, rest for individuals so they can be with their families, so they can go to church, so they can catch their breath, uh, even though we could squeeze out more profits if we were open both days of the weekend. Uh, it's in the way they, they pay their employees. They pay more than they would need to. They pay more than their competitors because they believe that they will have employees who are uh, more satisfied and who give more to the company than if they pl- paid them the, the absolute minimum in their benefits and the types of products that they sell and do not sell uh, in the way in which they rejuvenate communities where they open stores, their faith informs all aspects of what they do. And I think that's, again, on that same spectrum, it's true for a massive company like Hobby Lobby. It's also true for, for Christians who are starting and expanding small businesses uh, here in our country and around the world. Along the lines of something you just said there, Chris, about like taking care of the employee and providing good benefits um, and a good culture to retain those employees, I, I think that's sort of the direction the general market is going in. You know, we have the, uh, the, the conscious capitalism ideas, stakeholder integration, all these sort of concepts that, that seem to be kind of coming to the forefront of, of modern business. Is, is that your observation? Do you think that's the direction things are, are going in over the coming decades? I do. And, you know, I think that that's the, the exciting thing about our economy right now and, and sort of the, the way in which nonprofits and for-profit companies are starting to uh, resemble each other more and more in some ways. Uh, one of the, I think one of the most robust analysts of both the, the current reality and the trends in our marketplace uh, is the, the guys at Eventide Funds. I'm not sure how much you've tracked with them, but uh, two Christians started the company. Uh, they're immigrants here from India. And Robin John, uh, who is the one of the two founders, has this really sophisticated uh, view of, of analyzing a company's performance using a stakeholder paradigm. So they look at customer, customers, employees, stockholders, uh, vendors, and the environment. And they analyze each company based on how positively they are, in, you know, affecting those those stakeholder groups, and and then they they make their investments with the mutual fund that they manage, the funds they manage. They make their investments based on the scoring that comes out of how companies perform. And you know, they're one of the companies that famously avoided the subprime mortgage uh, collapse. They stayed out of that because they felt that subprime lenders were thriving as their customers were. Um, languishing. So they were, it was a, a, you know, an extractive business as opposed to a business that resulted in all the stakeholders benefiting. And, and they've been one of the top performing mutual funds. It's my wife and I are invested in and even tied it, but I'm just sharing as, as a Christian and, and seeing the way in which they're thinking about uh, business, I think is really on the leading edge of, of, of really good Christian thought on, on the economy. And, and I think it's, you know what basically what their uh, what their results are validating is that business done the right way is good business. And it might not create the most benefits in the short term. But in the long run, doing business ethically according to judeo-Christian values, it actually is what's best for all the stakeholder groups in the long run. Now, earlier you mentioned that uh, people in developing countries, by the nature of their economies and their, you know, the state of their governments and their just situation in life, 
that they kind of are forced to be entrepreneurial or look for a handout. In our country, we don't quite have that problem. And yet, you know, I can imagine some people listening and thinking, well, I'm not really entrepreneurial and I don't have to be because I can go find a job, but I don't really, I don't really know. How does this apply to somebody who doesn't consider themselves entrepreneurial in the sort of traditional stereotypical sense? How, how can they apply? Cause you do deal with this in, in your book. How, how do they apply uh, the principles of entrepreneurship or of just good Christian uh, work ethic, I guess, in a way that promotes human flourishing if they're not, you know, the leader of, a, of an organization? Well, I think that there are a couple of ways that you could apply it. One is in your leisure hours or your non-work hours in regards to how your church is involved in, in fighting poverty and giving back and serving the marginalized. I remember Early on in my tenure at Hope International, I was involved in a couple of different projects through my church that were really poorly run and and creating a lot more problems than they were solving. And and I, I think we all have a role to play in our churches and in the nonprofits that we're involved in, both through our philanthropy, but also our volunteerism, to do good well. And I remember, you know, in high school being a part of a, a project where we did the Christmas tree thing, you know, where where everyone got ornaments for uh, kids that that didn't have enough and didn't have enough Christmas gifts, and so we would go buy gifts. And I, I remember showing up uh, to this uh, family that was struggling financially with a group of my high school buddies. We walked up to the front door with bags of toys that we had purchased for that family for those kids. And so I just imagine now being a dad of three kids the indignity of showing up and, and opening my door to a group of uh, high school kids who have bags of toys that I'm going to then give to my kids and, and watching. I remember, you know, giving the gifts to this mom and, and her kids are all there seeing us hand the gifts to her that she's going to then give to her kids. Now there are so many great ways we can help families at Christmas. And that was not a good way. I mean, it was a way that really undermined uh, the dignity of that person and of that mom, its it really robbed her of the joy of being the provider for her kids. And I totally get it because we do things. You know, we make sacrifices for, of, we sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of our kids. She wanted to give her kids a good Christmas. Uh, but I contrast that to something that happens here in Denver uh, called the Christmas store where um, you can donate gifts and then those gifts are then sold in uh, a store, a consignment shop. Uh, that parents that are struggling financially and aren't able to buy all the things they want for their kids, they can come and still have the dignity of buying gifts and choosing what they want for their children. Uh, volunteers are there to to really treat them like celebrities, to to give them coffee and hot chocolate and um, create a really festive environment. So it's, a again, same heart, but just done in a better way. So I think all of us have a responsibility in our philanthropic efforts and our efforts at church to to ask the question, Am I stifling uh, or celebrating that this individual that I'm trying to help is created in the, in the image of God? And am I, am I coming as doctor patient uh, or is, am I coming alongside that person in a way that doesn't undermine who they are? So that's one element. Then the other element is I think all of us have opportunities in our jobs, no matter how much influence we have. But we all have opportunities to bring our faith to bear in the decisions that we make each and every day. And it may be in how we submit our expense reports. It might be in how we're structuring our team meetings or being willing to hang around the water cooler a little longer to talk to that person who is going through a hard time. 
So we all have a responsibility to allow our faith to inform that they work the work that we do each and every day. And then I think as we have opportunities, we should ask the question, uh, is my company, is my department uh, creating more flourishing in the world or is it extracting uh, in the way in which it conducts itself? And, and there, may be, uh, there may be moments where if the, if the answer is the latter, as a Christian, it may be time to look for a business that, um, that thrives as its customers and employees and stockholders and environment thrives and move into a company that's doing, uh, doing business better. So I think those are some of the ways I, I would think about applying some of the principles of the book. Do you think business as a concept, and, and maybe it's just because we talk about big business and the word corporation has sort of a stigma right now in our, you know, in the last decade or so, but do you think business has gotten a bad rap in the past few decades? And, and why do you think that might be? I think business has gotten a bad rap. Uh, and in some ways it's been deserving. I mean, I look at situations, I mean, look at Uber as a sort of contemporary example. Sure, they're innovative and they're doing a lot of amazing things in the world, but they they have an absolutely toxic workplace. And people that work there, you know, reading this the the insider takes on what that corporate culture is like, it really is a terrible place to be a woman uh, and, and be working there. Uh, they they have a, a long history of unethical practices that have been well documented. And and so I, I think some of the the bad rap is deserved. There are a lot of businesses behaving badly in our world. And if you look at Hollywood and some of you know the biggest companies in Hollywood and how they've treated individuals and those stories are, are, are all over the news. Um, but I think concurrent to a lot of the self-deserved um, bad press for business, there's also an, another interesting theme, which I think is actually quite different from when we wrote the book. And that's uh, that that entrepreneurs are celebrities in the modern environment and have way more power and way more influence in culture than they did than they did even a decade ago. Uh, after the the hurricane season this past year, one of the things I found so interesting was uh, the leaders, the government leaders of Puerto Rico, interacting with Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, uh, interacting with him over Twitter, asking if his company would come and help them solve their power grid issues. And I thought, what an interesting dynamic to see a government leader actively soliciting the help of a sort of a celebrity entrepreneur. And, and if you, it doesn't matter if it's Shark Tank or you look at recent ad campaigns that are featuring Mark Zuckerberg, you know, and there are the entrepreneurs, not only do they have much more influence, but they have much more celebrity in our culture. So I think that concurrent with a lot of the bad press is a lot of really good press and, and in some ways overhype of what business leaders are capable of doing. And I think, especially for millennials, uh, there is this sort of hope that technology and entrepreneurship and uh, and the startup world, like they're going to solve all of our world's problems. And as Christians, we know that's not true. Uh, but I think the tides are turning uh, in terms of how the public thinks about business. The final thing I'll say on that, and I, I think this is probably the, the, the most significant, uh, is that there are so many businesses doing things well that never get reported on. And, and I've shared a few of the examples already, but it's so rare to read a story about uh, Costco and the way in which Costco just creates an environment where everybody wins. Uh, their employees love working there. Look at the 10 years on the name tags of the employees at, at Costco. I mean, once you start working there, you don't leave. Uh, customers are happy. You talked about going there. I've, I've, my wife and I are there every week as well. And customers are happy. The vendors get paid well. They get paid on time. 
so there just aren't enough stories of, and, and frankly, we're a culture in general is sort of gravitates toward negative stories. And so those are the ones that make the airwaves and a lot of people doing business well, they just conduct themselves in the shadows and are, and are doing great work, creating jobs and uh, creating valuable goods and services for culture. And nobody knows about it. Chris, you know, along the lines of um, shows like Shark Tank and, and things of that sort, another show that's been doing pretty well, at least as, as far as I know, over the last 10 or so years has been like Undercover Boss. And, you know, I'm not saying I endorse like the, the idea of, oh, I'm going to lie to my employees and go undercover. But I, I think the positive aspect of that is that it, it showed senior executives and larger businesses um, taking on a more active role, caring about their caring about their people. Um, so, can you talk to us a little bit about the value of big business, like you know Fortune 500 companies in societal improvement, and also how that contrasts to the ways in which big business can also be used to to do the opposite. You know, it can be used for bad things. It can be used for good things. And how should we sort through and think about this? That's a question that we could spend hours discussing, and uh, I think there's a, a lot of dimensions to it. But as, as you reflected on it, I do think there is a, a resurgence, a renewal of curiosity within large businesses. And I, I get to interact in my job with a lot of executives at large companies and business owners. And, and I do think, whereas maybe a couple of you know, decades ago, uh, business was a means to an end. You know, you, you run your business, you go check in, you check out. If you're a worker as an owner, you run the business so that you can go do the things you want to do in retirement. Uh, there's an increased energy and fascination and curiosity around the actual substance of the work we do. Is the, the workplace a place where people can flourish or uh, is it a place where people are just checking in and checking out? And, and is, are the goods and services that we're creating, are they making society better or worse? So I think that there are a lot of really incredible examples of, of the ways in which companies are, are changing. I mean, one of the companies that I know, and, and I, I speak as someone who's an amateur, but uh, a company that, that has had a lot of bad press, uh, probably some of it undeserved, but I know some of it deserved is Walmart. And and yet Walmart, I think, is kind of awakening to the new moment uh, of culture. And you know, I, I saw recently that they're the largest purveyor of organic foods, you know, being a, a company that they used to not sell any and, and now are really trying to get good quality foods out into culture as opposed to um, just selling whatever they can make the most profit on. And again, that's painting Walmart with very broad, uh, very broad brushstrokes. Uh, but they're also, in, in how they're treating their employees, the same thing is happening where in many ways, many, you know, and I'm sure you've read the stories of, of Walmart limiting employees' hours so they wouldn't have to pay benefits, paying way, way less than their competitors. And they're beginning to, the market forces are beginning to, to force them to sort of ask questions about how they're conducting their, themselves. And, and there's a lot of really positive renewal that's happening. So I, I think there's a lot to celebrate in terms of, of business and, and really the sort of the private sector as a whole finding its conscience. And yet I think that there is a, a lot of work remaining uh, for, for these companies and a lot of work and sort of self-criticism that's needed. There, there are a lot of ways we could go with that. But I mean, I think that the Uber example is one that's probably most haunting 
because I we think of Silicon Valley, we think of these tech startups and these companies that are creating our future. Uh, and and you sort of assume that they're doing it while treating people well. And yet, um, again, as well as it's well documented, Uber has just had a really heinous track record on almost every level uh, for how they're treating their drivers and their employees at headquarters. Uh, and, and I think that the, the, the great sort of reality of our modern environment is that every if you have a cell phone, you're a journalist. And so these stories, while they're they're still happening, uh, they're told a lot more publicly than they used to be. No, no company is operating in secret as much anymore as they once were. One of the things you talk about in, in the book is something called the missing middle. Could you give our listeners a, a little idea of what, what that is? In countries like Haiti, where there are very few large businesses and and almost everyone is a is an entrepreneur by necessity. A sort of implicit reality there is that there there just are very few businesses that are going to become big businesses. So the the missing middle is proven out across the world that for a country to grow and and have a healthy economy and a healthy society, there needs to be a preponderance that you know a large number of small and medium sized businesses. These are the the businesses that that create and sustain the most jobs, and oftentimes the environment. Uh, are really inhospitable to small and medium-sized enterprises. And we experience some of these realities in, in our work, uh, even trying to register Hope International in countries. In some places, uh, registering an entity can take uh, months and years uh, just because the, the environment is such that it's, it's really inhospitable to, to innovation and to entrepreneurship. Uh, there's a, a really fascinating book by Hernando de Soto called The Mystery of Capital, and in that book, he articulates how some some countries just make it really difficult uh, in, in and through the policies they have to start or sustain a business. And this, you know, money just flees countries like that, and and investment capital doesn't come into companies like that. And so it becomes really difficult for entrepreneurs to grow their businesses, both because they can't get investment capital, but also because they can't get access to markets and to customers. So the missing middle. Uh, is a is a problem that I hope we're trying to solve by working with entrepreneurs whose businesses are growing and thriving to help them make the leap from the informal economy, from households household subsistence businesses, uh, to small and medium sized businesses that not only provide jobs for themselves but also can create jobs for others in their community. Where are the places in the world that have the biggest need? Maybe, maybe not necessarily the places, but in what kind of ways does the world who, the, the, the developing world, I mean, where does the developing world need Christian influence, um, or for that matter, just simply entrepreneurship influence? You know, I think a lot of our listeners would be like, okay, this is really great, where you can be, you know, we can promote entrepreneurship, even if we aren't one, but like, you know, we do need to think outside ourselves. And I know we want to often be thinking about like, well, how can we change the world? And that's a very lofty goal, but there are tangible ways in which we can help. I mean, obviously we can, you know, we can make donations to places like Hope International. Uh, but in terms of uh, m more than just that, you know, where, where do people need to look to get involved if they want to? There's no shortage. There are no shortage of needs and opportunities for people to to be involved. Uh, and, and I, I have a very narrow window into the world. So I would encourage your listeners to not just, you know, hear, hear my recommendations, but to, to really 
ask that question more broadly of other people in, in your network and your community. But, you know, I would suggest that there's a huge opportunity for us as Christians to, to be involved in entrepreneurship, in our charitable giving, uh, as well as in our investment capital and thinking about our portfolio. We talked about Eventide funds earlier, uh, but my financial advisor, uh, Jeremy Walter at Fident Financial, he, he, when we discuss our investment strategy, and, and this is not like complex investments, just with our you know, everyday retirement savings, uh, just asking the question, I mean, or answering the question that he asked, which is, what sorts of businesses do you want to be involved in with your portfolio? And and most working professionals have money that's going somewhere, uh, it's being invested somewhere. And uh, have that conversation with your financial advisor about the sorts of companies that you're invested in. Are those companies perpetuating things that you are proud of, uh, or are they perpetuating things that, that create harm? Uh, and, you know, my conversations with our advisor began with sin screening. You know, we don't want to invest in some of the mutual funds that have money in big, you know, pornography companies or companies that otherwise victimize people, but really have advanced uh, over the years to be able to ask the question, all right, which companies among these, <laughs> these options, which are the ones that are doing the most good in the world and treating their people well and creating the best products? And I want to put our, our small investment dollars that we have into those sorts of companies. So, so that's one side of the, the coin. The other is, uh, is with our charitable giving and, and just having the conversations with the organizations and our churches that we support and ensuring that at least the conversation is happening around work. Because if we're missing work, I think we're missing something really important. And we've talked about that already, uh, but I think our, our charitable efforts are really critical. And, and oftentimes we we give in a way that inhibits people's ability to work. And so I would encourage your listeners to have that conversation. And in terms of other organizations that are out there in the world doing this, I mean, I would point you to uh, a few organizations that we're partnered with. Uh, Partners Worldwide out of Grand Rapids is a really fantastic organization helping Christian business owners, small, medium-sized business owners all over the world. Uh, local business owners, not Americans or expats, but you know people that are in the community, helping them to create businesses that do good in their communities. Uh, Praxis is another group out of New York. They have a, a really terrific accelerator where they're working with 12 nonprofit and 12 for-profit founders every year. And their businesses and nonprofits are working all around the world uh, and doing really incredible things. Uh, Sovereign's Wealth uh, Sovereign's Capital is another organization founded by Henry Kaysner and, again, is a, an investment fund that really targets Christian-led enterprises operating in the developing world and in emerging markets. Uh, and then Chalmers, uh, a group that's based out of Covenant College in um, uh, Tennessee. And Chalmers, uh, again, works all around the world, uh, really emphasizing these principles. And their, their founder, one of their founders, Brian Fickert, uh, as a co-author of a book called When Helping Hurts. And, and that would be a great follow-up resource if you want to learn more uh, on this topic would be to read When Helping Hurts. I think it's a great introduction to this sort of dynamics of charity and poverty and how a lot of times our attempts to help do more harm than good. Yeah, you mentioned Praxis. And actually, one of the, the founders of Praxis, Isaac Morehouse, has been on this show and has, has published a lot of stuff actually on on our website. So we we know Isaac well. So, Chris, as we kind of wrap this up here, what would you say 
excites you the most about where you think things are going and about the prospects for really ending global poverty or materially alleviating global poverty? Where, where is the most optimism the, as you see it as we, as we go forward? Well, the, the greatest untold secret of the, the world today is that extreme poverty is decreasing at unprecedented rates. And it doesn't matter what metric you look at, uh, whether it's people's earning potential and how much money they're making, or you look at literacy rates or rates of people that are suffering malnutrition. I mean, across the board, these metrics are all sinking. And and it's it's happening, even though we, we the majority of Americans think the world is getting worse off, uh, even though the data suggests just the opposite. And if you look even 30 years ago, half the world's population at that point was living uh, below the extreme poverty line, living on on less than the dollar twenty five, a dollar twenty five a day, and today it's around ten percent of the world's population. So just over you know three ish decades, the percentage of people in the world living right on the line of survival was about fifty percent, and it's now down to about ten percent. And and that's happened according to a number of studies, uh, but one that I've most recently read was out of Yale and the Brookings Institution. And they said it's because of the expand uh, the expansion of globalization and capitalism. So so business uh, and the opportunities for business people to grow has created opportunities for people to work, which has created opportunities for people to escape poverty. So I, I think to close out, the thing that makes me most excited is that uh, Christians have an exciting role to play in that. One of my friends here in Colorado is a guy named James Reuter, and he and his wife owned a, a pallet company. It's one of the least um, flashy businesses you can imagine, uh, but they, they manufacture, remanufacture, and uh, repair pallets, wooden pallets. And I remember when I first met James that his business uh, w- was really, he saw it as a necessary evil. Like it, it created wealth for him and his family and it created opportunities for them to give charitably and to give go on mission trips and uh and but it was a really unhealthy business and he would he would be very forthright about this and over the course of the last decade god has really changed his heart and changed their hearts and seen that they have an opportunity not just in their charitable giving and their involvement at church but in and through their business to create good in the world and to be a part of the work god's doing of redeeming all things to himself. And, and so over the course of the last decade, they've gone from a business that had like 300% turnover every year down to almost zero. They went from a company that was paying their employees the very minimum they possibly could to now paying people wages that allow them to provide for their families. And while they're doing that, they also have this incredible uh, opportunity to start serving refugee families specifically. So right now they have 120 employees. Over half of those employees are refugees from Burma. Uh, who live in Denver. And, and so they've, they've really invested in this community of people, creating opportunities for them to experience dignifying work, paying them well. They've, they're doing citizenship classes. They have chaplains on staff that provide counseling services to these employees who have been through a lot of trauma in being refugees to our country. And the business is flourishing and it's more profitable today than it ever has been. And it's allowing James to hire more people, allowing him to give more charitably, uh, and, and so it's this really beautiful picture of, of how the renewal of their um, curiosity and imagination and faith about their business itself has created good in all areas of, of their, um, their lives and their businesses 
um, and all in their areas of business business performance. And and so in and through their business, they're seeing that uh, as entrepreneurs and as business owners, they don't have a backseat role to play or a philanthropic role to play exclusively, but they have a role to play in alleviating poverty and creating uh, opportunities for people to flourish in and through the work that they do, do each and every day. Uh, and I think that that's what gives me hope. You know, Chris, I think stories like that help us visualize the kind of things that we can do if we set our, our hearts and our business and our mind to changing the world in a way that brings about human flourishing and understanding how we can contribute to the to the broader progress that is that is going on. And so I'm really glad you were able to come on uh, to talk about uh, your book today and talk about what it is that we can do, what we can promote uh, in the way of uh, Christian uh, entrepreneurship and for the benefit of human flourishing. So I just want to thank you for being with us. I loved uh, the conversation and I'm grateful for the work you guys are doing. It was our pleasure having you on today. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also find us on Twitter at LCI Official. You can find us on Facebook and, of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.